0: <laughs> 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 What's the one these two? Okay. We're two weeks away from Thanksgiving, right? Okay, try way. Okay, because we were, she was like, if it's gonna overlap with Thanksgiving, make sure we don't schedule it. So it sounds like you're on top of it. Yeah, well, cool. yeah. Uh, hopefully. She just brought up a, I was yeah. like, oh yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Alright, guys, let's go ahead and get started. <sighs> I'm sorry that I was late. Everybody was coming in uh, after me, then, wow. <clears throat> Are you guys ready? <clears throat> All right, so uh, lesson 10 uh, today. So we're doing uh, part two of progressive Christianity. So we're looking at the the response to the challenges that progressive Christianity brings to uh, biblical Christianity. Actually, before we get to that. Uh, So one of the claims, one of the claims that Machen made in the book that we talked about last time, uh, Christianity and liberalism, is uh, that liberalism is not scientific. Uh, And by abandoning biblical authority... It, it, being liberal Christianity, was also forced to abandon truth altogether. And in so doing, they became a pseudo-Christian faith uh, that dethroned God and deified themselves. So they put, they put man as, as basically the center of their religion, and they take God out of it. Uh, so today we're going to take our stand on the wall of biblical authority And see if we can defend the answer that the naturalist uh, questions, uh, to to answer the the questions from the materialists or the naturalists that the uh, liberals fear so much. All right, so remember that castle analogy that we talked about last time, where uh, the wall is biblical authority and the citadel are the central Christian truths and uh, faith claims, the doctrines, those red tag issues. Uh, We're going to stand on that wall and we're going to defend it tonight. All right. This is uh, this. Is, by the way, this is also not the first time that liberalism has cropped up in history. It always has some kind of manifestation in every generation. It's just especially dangerous and predominant in our time. Uh, for example, in the first century, you had a group of Jews called the Sadducees. They were effectively the liberals of Jesus's day. All right, they denied the immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the dead, and the existence of angelic beings. They also only accepted certain books of the Bible. Uh, they had their own little uh, biblical criticism that they did. Uh, and as you can see, there are similarities between them and, uh, them and what you see today, what we talked about last time, but the overlap is not total. And Jesus had a pretty harsh rebuke for them. He said, is this not the reason you were wrong? So they asked him a question. And he, he just says, you're wrong, <laughs> all right? Uh, the question itself was inherently wrong. Uh, for you, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's Mark 12, 24. And then he proceeded to answer their question about marriage and the resurrection by using scripture. The apostle Paul knew that people would come, to, come saying things like this, uh, largely because there were already people saying it in his day. Uh, So in Colossians 2.8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's basically liberalism right there. Uh, Just a reminder, liberalism is an attempt to save Christianity by appeasing uh, to the modern naturalistic worldview. Uh, But the naturalists are not appeased and they push forward after they have abandoned the wall and they take the citadel anyways because they're never satisfied by giving in, uh, by you giving in until you've completely renounced your Christian faith altogether. That's the only thing that's gonna satisfy uh, that modern worldview. There is no peace without victory. One must win and the other must lose. Anytime liberalism takes hold in a church, uh, it's gonna take over unless it's excised from the, from the community altogether. I don't have many slides today, so it's going to be like we did a couple weeks ago, uh, mostly just verbal. I have a few, though. Uh, There is a problem in the church because far too many conservative pastors and theologians are uh, susceptible to academic ambition. So they want to rise through the ranks in academia. Uh, You need to be liberal to get ahead in the academic world. Just pure and simple. They They control the academic institutions across the board. Uh, that's just the reality of it. Uh, at least that's the way it has been for centuries. That is kind of starting to change. Uh, there is definitely a growing conservative academic movement. Uh, and a lot of it has I drew on for the, uh, what we're gonna talk about today. Uh, but there's still too many who want the approval of their liberal, the, liberal, the people who control liberal academia. right. And they are tempted uh, to either be consistent with liberal theology or to be silent about it. All right. And that's the case for pastors like Tim Keller, at least as far as I can tell from a distance. So I wanted to give you a flavor of how different people approach truth when they're given questions. Um, I didn't I just saw this on uh, somewhere on social media in the last week or two and decided to save it for this class. So if you ask John John MacArthur the question two plus two, this is how he would probably answer it. And if you've listened to him a lot, you know this is exactly what he'd say. Uh, There are only two responses to this question: the correct answer four, and every other wrong answer. All right, Paul Washer, you say, brother Paul, what is two plus two? Four. There is no other answer. That definitely sounds like Paul Washer to me. Uh, And here's John Piper. Logic is not optional, it's essential. Mathematics is achieved when we are most satisfied with what answers the equation. Therefore, our pursuit of two plus two is found in the answer four. If you know Piper, that is very Piper-esque. Here's Tim Keller, all right. There are multiple views on this question, none of which are biblical. So how do we engage this question at all? Here we consider a model that we will address the multiple views and see how we can apply it to our own lives. All right, yeah, creative, illogical, logical, and literal. So <clears throat> uh, that right there is a sign of progressivism. He's, he's drifting that way. Um, I'm not saying that he's there, as I don't, I don't know enough, but uh, there's definitely warning signs, warning signs there, and that's something to watch out for in your pastors and uh, anybody else that you would want to listen to. All right, so let's get into it a little bit. Uh, biblical criticism. So that was, that's a big thing that liberals want to bring to the table against Christianity. Uh, they claim that the Bible is the result of oral traditions, that it was not written down when Jesus was alive, and things developed between his death and the time of, right, of the, when the Gospels were written down. Also, there are so many variants that we cannot know what the original text or the manuscripts said. So basically this, the scenario that they give you is this, is that Jesus dies on the cross, this is a historical. So Jesus dies on the cross, time passes, people tell and repeat the stories about Jesus, more time passes, the early Christian community preserves the oral stories and teacher, and the teachings, and then more time passes, and then the authors of the gospels use the oral stories and teachings when writing their gospels. So they're gonna say it's an oral tradition, that these things were written down hundreds of years later, uh, and these were not written down by people who knew Jesus at all, or the apostles, or anybody else. That's the claim that uh, that they make. Uh, not, that is just not true. That whole historical timeline is completely false, uh, as we've seen with uh, as we'll see with some scho- other scholarship that has been done. Uh, they do something that's called redaction criticism, which is how the authors shape the material. Like there was there were issues going on in the culture. The Roman Empire was persecuting them, and that's how, that's the context that they wrote these Gospels in. So that it's not exactly true to what happened, it's just, it's a reflection of what they were going through at the time. It's kind of like a giant game of telephone, right, written over the course of hundreds of years. And of course, if you've ever played that game, even messages through 20 people in a room over 10 minutes can get skewed pretty bad. Uh, they talk about two different kinds of criticism, higher criticism, which is examining the text to determine who wrote it. So they're going to look at forms and how words are used and things like that and say this part of the, this part of uh, uh, Genesis was written by this guy and this part of Genesis was written by a different guy and things like that. Or this, this letter was not written by Paul. It was written by somebody 200 years later. Uh, never mind how you can possibly figure that stuff out. But they they certainly try. And then they have lower criticism, which is looking at variants to determine what was the original text. Uh, Liberal theologians try to understand the Bible by being critical of it and studying it without truly looking at what the words say. Uh, The Christian, however, understands the Bible by reading it, taking the message it conveys into our lives. It's a big difference. So the Christian response uh, so we're going to talk about the variants and all like the many, many thousands of variants that there are out there of the Bible. I want to be the one to tell you these things. You've probably already heard about it themselves. Uh, but I'm going to tell you how bad it really is and then tell you why it's actually really good. <laughs> so uh, I want you to hear it from me uh, as a fellow believer and a brother in Christ, because I'm going to give you the full picture, the skeptic or the liberal theologian will almost never give you the full picture. Uh, It's like, I wanna make an analogy that there's like a little boy named Johnny. Uh, He comes up to you and he says, I was given a medal by the mayor last night. And you think, wow, that's really great, Johnny. Like, why did the mayor give you a medal? And he said, I kept the town free of trash and I picked up weeds in all the yards for a whole month straight every day. All right. And you think, wow, Johnny's a really great kid. And it's I'm glad that somebody in authority in authority is recognizing the work of Johnny here at our church. Uh, only to find out later that he didn't give you the full context. And he's talking about a video game named Animal Crossing. Right, And he uh, took care of his town and the medal in the game and the, the mayor in that game gave him a medal for it. Right. So you it's, see it, that changes your perception of the value of Johnny's actions, doesn't it? A little bit. Uh, That's that's what the liberal theologians do. They're only giving you half the story. They're leaving out important, very important context. Uh, This is a quote from a guy named Bart Ehrman. He is currently the world's leading skeptic of the Bible, I would say. He is uh, the liberal theologian like that's at the pinnacle right now. Uh, Everybody, who's everybody is using his material. All around the world, Uh, he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. This is from page 10. It says, not only do we have the originals, this is talking about the original writings of the scriptures from the apostles, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later. In most instances, they are copies made many centuries later. And these copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. As we will see later in this book, these copies differ from one another in so many places that we don't even know how many differences there are. Possibly it is easiest to put it in comparative terms. There are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Uh, Okay, so by and large, everything in that quote is actually true. Uh, However, it is completely wrong. (laughs) Okay, so you might be asking, how is it true and completely wrong? It's because he's completely taken all of those facts out of their proper context. All right, as we're going to see. It's just like the little boy leaving out the detail that he's playing a video game and he wasn't actually going around picking up trash in your yard. Okay, He was just doing it in the game. Uh, so let me go back. So the truth about variance in the manuscript. So if you accept the standards that liberal theologians like Bart Ehrman give us, then you can actually not accept anything in history. It means we know nothing that has happened in history at all in antiquity. Uh, Was Alexander the Great a real person? What about Caesar or Shakespeare? Did he actually write these plays? We have no idea if you use the standard that the liberal theologians bring to the New Testament. We actually have more evidence supporting the Bible than any other ancient text ever, anywhere in the world. And it's not even close, like thousands of times more evidence of what happened in the first century in Israel than anywhere else in history. All of the New Testament books, all of them were written before the end of the first century in the lifetimes of those who witnessed the events. And they were (coughs) written by those who witnessed the events or by people who interviewed the eyewitnesses themselves. Every single one of them. Uh, And there was no central authority anywhere in the world controlling these copies. So two people, let's just say they have there's a copy at this, this town. Two people come up. They each make their own copy and then one goes north, one goes south, they bring it to a town, people copy those and they get spread out and they go to other towns, they get copied, they get spread out. That's basically how that happened. So it just, it went everywhere. No one was controlling it at all, which is good because if you have one person that's dictating what manuscripts are going out, uh, then they control, they can control the message and they can change things and no one would know. The fact that it was completely uncontrolled, um, that's that's actually a really good thing. So obviously along the way, mistakes were made because the, all the earliest manuscripts are not gonna be done by professional scribes, largely. They're gonna be done by people who are just wanting to get a copy of Paul's letter to the Romans themselves. And so they scratch one out real quick on their uh, papyrus. So the, which creates a lot of variance, all right? So variants can be funny sometimes. So, for example, there was a printing of the King James Bible in the Bible in 16 uh, something. It's called the Sinner's Bible, this version of it, uh, because it was, it's also called the Adulterer's Bible, because in the Ten Commandments it said thou shalt, shalt commit adultery. They forgot to put the word not to him there. Uh, and I'm not going to read that last one. I'll let you do it yourself. But that word is supposed to be greatness. Not what the, that's not what the Lord is supposed to be showing you. All right. But that was in the King James Bible. It's the reason why they call it the Sinner's Bible. So those kinds of things just happen when you're doing it by hand, manually. I mean, even when you're doing it with a machine like this, things happen. Uh, So what exactly is a variant? So let's just say I wrote a sentence, Pastor Joel ate ice cream. And then you wrote it down, Pastor Joel, he ate ice cream. There's no substantive difference between those two sentences at all, but it is counted as a variance because it's something that's different from the original because they added uh, one word in there, the word. There are, it is true according to what Bart Ehrman said, there are over 400,000 variants in the New Testament. And there are only about 138,000 words in the New Testament in the original Greek. So that's a lot. Uh, so let's talk about that's that's related to the quantity of variants. Um, Well let's let's put that four hundred thousand in context. All right, those four hundred thousand variants. We have five thousand over five thousand eight hundred Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. These are not necessarily full text manuscripts. Some of those are a large number. These are just partial fragments, uh, either a little piece or even multiple pages, et cetera. Uh, that amounts to 1.2 million pages of Greek text. So that's a lot of material to work with. Uh, on top of that, we have over 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and then another five to 10,000 manuscripts in other language, languages such as Syriac and Hebrew. Uh, an Armenian that would be another one in total we have over 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament uh, that go back to antiquity that is a really good thing Uh, you have a high manuscript count uh, which necessarily leads to a high uh, variant count the more manuscripts that you have the more variants you have uh, but that's okay in fact that's a good thing so for example if I put like one page of text up on the screen here and I asked one of you to write out what it said and then I deleted that document and it was gone and we looked at your document, what kind of confidence can we have that you copied it 100% correct? We could have no confidence. You could have wrote any, written anything down that you wanted, right? Because we don't have any way to verify it. But what if I asked five of you to write it down and now we can compare them. 10, 20 people. What about 20,000 people? Because we have 24,000 manuscripts. Okay? It's, once you have that, that volume of material, you can compare everything together, and you can actually come out and figure out exactly what the original text was based on where the mistakes are where things are consistent, et cetera. So it is a good thing. Uh, Let's compare that to other Greek texts throughout history. On average, you have 20 copies on average of every other document in antiquity. Remember, we have 24,000 for the New Testament. On average, just 20 for everything else. So Homer's Iliad is the next highest behind the New Testament at 1,900. It's just below 2,000. Josephus, he's a historian, a Jewish historian. We have about 300 copies of his, and these are high, high counts. Uh, Sophocles' plays, he was a, guy, a Greek guy who wrote a bunch of plays, 226 copies. We only have 263 copies of Plato, 49 copies of Aristotle, and 36 copies of Tacitus. He was a Roman historian that was contemporary with Josephus. And by the way, with Tacitus, we only have about one third of his works. Uh, we have every single verse that was ever written in the new testament without a doubt uh, But we don't have that with we don't know that for sure with a lot of these guys okay we have a thousand times more evidence uh, that Jesus for Jesus than any other historical figure in history at all like more than that in fact you could say we have 12,000 uh, yeah, 12, times i can't do math whatever 2000 into 24 is uh, we have a lot more evidence all right, uh, Bart Ehrman himself, he says that the New Testament is the earliest attested document in all of antiquity, because it's just true. It just is. Uh, but he doesn't lead with that. He just gives you the information, such as 400,000 variants. There's more variants than there are words in the Bible, and then he leaves you off there. He doesn't. He t- intentionally does not give you the rest of the story because he wants you. To come to the conclusion that he, he knows is not true. Okay, because he's just a skeptic of the Bible. He doesn't want to believe what it says. Uh-huh. And by the way, time from the original, so the first copy that we have from the time that it was originally written, other Greek texts, it's about 500 years on average before you have even a fragment. OK, the New Testament, we have fragments 25 years after the events happened, after the documents were written. That's really, really, really early. Uh, And then the with the Gospel of John, it may be even within like 10 years, 10 to 20 years. All right. We have full manuscripts, full copies of the New Testament, 225 years after the original events happened compared to 500 before you even get a fragment for everything else. So the New Testament has way more evidence supporting it uh, than what we have any, anywhere else. But you don't ever hear anybody questioning whether Homer's Iliad is accurate or not. Or whether uh, the yeah, Tacitus' annals are accurate, etc. Or Pliny the Great's works, etc. We have uh, a manuscript it's called P52. This is the earliest known manuscript that we have. It was uh, written in 90 to 100 AD and that's just very shortly and that's uh, the gospel from the Gospel of John because it was it was said for a long time like for 200 years by liberal theologians that the Gospel of John was not written in the first or second century that it was a really late forgery because it's too different from all the other gospels it had to have been made up it was it was made by some Christian community that happened that took uh, that existed long after the events happened. Well, now we have a copy of it, or at least a piece of it, that dates it to the first century. So, and this is a copy of it, all right? And if you know, if it's, it seems to follow that if you have a copy, that the original came before it, right? And before you had to have a piece of a copy, it means there was probably many copies of it already made. So this also, in my opinion, it slams the door on, uh, the late theory for when John was written. Some people think it wasn't even written until 90 A.D. I disagree. It had to have been uh, had to have been before that because we already had copies floating around by then. Uh, this is Daniel Wallace, uh, famously said that two tons of German scholarship went up in flames when this piece of fragment was found because it just destroyed everything, uh, all that scholarly research, and that really disqualifies the work that they're doing because they're taking that same philosophy, those same tools, and applying it everywhere else when they're attacking the Bible. But we have verified evidence that those tools are wrong. So, it's no good. Let's talk about a, a little bit about the quality of the variants. So, 99% of those 400,000 variants do not matter at all. Not one bit. Uh, they include things like the movable new, which is the Greek letter N. It looks like a V to us. Uh, so in, in Greek, they have the same thing as we do in English with A and an. So you wouldn't say N, apple, A, car. They have the exact same thing in Greek, but it's not standard because they, they didn't have standard uh, dictionaries. They didn't have standard gra- uh, grammar books, et cetera, back then. It was just kind of the way people did things in a certain area. So uh, you have that all over the place, right, that you include an N or not. So every time that there is an N versus not an N, at the end of a word, they, uh, they count that as a variant. So that right there eats up like 40% of the variance. Uh, word order also matters, or they count word order as a difference. So in English, this matters. So if I said I want to drive you over to the park, right, you, it has a very different meaning than for I want to drive to the park over you, okay? Uh, big difference, <clears throat> but in Greek you can do, you can swap those words around quite a bit because there are endings like you see in Spanish, except even more so. Uh, we talked about it a few weeks ago and, with the Jehovah's witness and looking at John chapter one. Uh, so the word, the words can move around without changing the meaning. Uh, the, both the movable new and the word order, they're so insignificant that you can't even translate them into English at all. Regardless of the way that they're ordered in Greek, it comes out the exact same in English every single time. Uh, They count spelling mistakes as well. Uh, Once again, like I said, there's no dictionary back then. So people spelled words just how they sounded. So if different areas had different accents, words just got spelled differently. Uh, There's also like the word John in Greek is uh, Johannes. And sometimes that's spelled with one letter N and sometimes it's with two. Uh, every in single, every single instance that you have the name John in your New Testament, there's a variant there where there's one spelling one way and one the other way. And that right there is a whole bunch more variants. So we're really narrowing down these variants quite a, quite a bit. Uh, none of these are meaningful or viable variants at all. Meaning they're just completely and totally irrelevant you can't even put them into English. Uh, they, just, they just mean nothing at all. Uh, then you have a group of variables that are, me, uh, sorry, of variants that are meaningful, but they're not viable. It means that if, that they're clearly not back to the original, but if they were, they would mean something. Okay, so for example, you have 1 Thessalonians 2.7, uh, where... The correct reading is we were gentle among you, but we have one manuscript that says we were horses among you. Uh, And the reason is because it's just a little slip of the pen there. It's epioi versus hippioi. It sounds very similar, and if somebody has an accent, you never know. Or maybe you're just tired and you just made that first letter wrong. Uh, 25% of all those variants are in this category, and there are things like that. It means they're very obvious that they don't go back to the original. Like you just have one instance of it or it's just really obvious because Paul is not trying to say that that they, were, they acted like horses among people, right? He was saying we were gentle. It's very, very obvious. So you can 25% of the variance right there. After all that's said and done, we have less than 1% of those variable, those variance left. These are ones that are meaningful and viable. So it's only about 1,500 to 2,000 that are left for you to look at. Okay, uh, An example of one that would be meaningful and viable would be from 1 Thessalonians two nine, where it says the gospel of God, which I think is the original, uh, or the gospel of Christ. But that could, be, that could be meaningful, right, because you're trying to equate it was it God or Christ who did it but it ultimately does not matter because we have so many other verses that are not in question that equate Jesus with God, right? It's, it's beyond, beyond a shadow of a doubt. We've covered it very in depth in other classes that Jesus is God. Uh, so it ultimately doesn't really mean anything. It would only be meaningful if we didn't have those other verses. So even these don't really have any impact on Christian doctrine anywhere at all. So there's, there's no single major Christian doctrine anywhere that is affected by any variant that we're aware of at this time at all. So the whole variant question, 400,000 uh, variants, more words, more variants than there are words in the New Testament is totally irrelevant. You can still have 100% certitude and extreme confidence that the Bible that you have in front of you is the exact one, or very, very, very close in a way that wouldn't mean anything to what the original authors wrote. So that's that's that. Any questions about that? I think it's I think it's important to no, know because there's all the, all that extra context. They don't ever tell you that. They don't include that in news articles when you hear when you hear things written about it. Um, so just a quick summary that, of, the, of that area. Uh, the variants, they're not impactful anywhere at all. Uh, even viable variants, variants don't affect doctrine. We can have extreme confidence in the Bible. And every old manuscript that we found has been consistent with the ones that we, that we found that were later. So we had manuscripts originally, like in Martin Luther's day, those manuscripts were from like the 1200s. They did not go all the way back to the the first century. The the manuscripts that he translated from and other people like Wycliffe and uh, uh, Tyndale, et cetera, uh, those manuscripts, as we found older and older and older and even more and more and more manuscripts, scripts lined up exactly. Like we didn't, there's nothing that has changed from the the Bible that they used then to what we have today. Like, it's just, it's exactly the same. And by the way, no scholar actually believes these claims anymore, right? Bart Ehrman admits this. Uh, If you press any of them on it privately, they're gonna tell you things like, yeah, it's an attested to documents. Um, We don't actually question it, but they will uh, intentionally mislead you by quoting from old scholarship neglecting the new scholarship that proves that the old stuff is bad, or they just don't put things in the context. They're intentionally leading people on into unbelief by basically just lying to you by omission of facts. And it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, probably the most, uh, the biggest variant, and the one that you're probably gonna be the most aware of is the ending of Mark. So if you're not aware, if you go to your Bibles, look at the last chapter of Mark and there's going to be a chunk. Usually there's like some brackets, like big, and they emphasize that the rest of this is probably not original, but they include it anyways. Uh, That almost certainly is not original, but it also is very old. So they do include it, you know, just in case. I'd rather uh, have something extra there that I can look at rather than something that's supposed to be there that isn't. Uh, but even that, there's nothing in the extra long ending of Mark that contradicts anything else. There are e- ways to easily handle that text. A pastor could preach from it without acknowledging that it is a variant, and it wouldn't affect anything else. There's nothing that's impacted by that. You can find all of that information elsewhere in the scriptures, everywhere else. It's just repeated information. So there's still no change there, even with the, the biggest... Uh, and, and that's probably the one with the most impact. So. <clears throat> uh, and by the way, here I brought my Greek New Testament. Uh, this is the Novum Testamentum Greek uh, from Nestle-Aland. This New Testament contains every viable variant in it that was up to date in 2012. And you can see it's not very thick. It's really not that much thicker than what you have in your Bibles there. So this is all the variants that might matter, but ultimately don't really have any impact. So it's if you want to come take a look at it, go ahead. But uh, So that's just evidence for, you know, for your eyes. <clears throat> so let's just look at some of these liberal claims as well about just their belief system. Uh, so apart from just the biblical criticism aspect, they say that the Bible is from man. So... The Bible was written by men. It is full of contradictions. I have never found a contradiction in the Bible, one that I thought was viable, at least. That's just my opinion. Um, I've looked at hundreds of them personally. Uh, Some people will tell you there are countless variants or sorry, countless contradictions in the Bible. Uh, But just ask them if they're really to find out if they're really being honest in their question that they really think this or not is don't ask them to give you a bunch of contradictions. Say, give me your best contradiction that you can, that you can think of. And then take, the, take those, those two verses and set them out side by side. The vast majority of the time, you can resolve the difference just by looking at the text and just just looking at it and being reasonable about it. Uh, it's, it's very rare that you have any that require anything other than just looking at the text. There are a handful where you need some more historical information uh, or information outside of the Bible to understand what's going on, but there's really only a few of those. Uh, The vast majority of them are, uh, for example, how many women were at the tomb, right? How many different, there's like three different accounts about how many women were there, Uh, but let's just be reasonable about it. So it is not unreasonable at all to say that everybody who was there was mentioned in each gospel account okay we do this all the time in the way that we speak like for example back when I was in high school I went fishing with two of my friends the names were Matt and Lizzie while fishing Matt got a phone call from somebody and he said hey I'm out fishing with my friend Trent and he, he left out Lizzie so didn't mention her at all uh, why did he do that all Right? because she got angry at him and and made him asked him why she was neglected Uh, He didn't even think about it. It was because the person he was talking to didn't know her, all right, but they knew me. So he just said, oh, well, I'm fishing with Trent because that person knows who I am. He doesn't have to explain anything extra. It was still a true statement, and it wasn't like he was intentionally trying to deceive anybody or anything. Uh, Furthermore, another friend asked me the next day if I had talked with Lizzie recently and I responded by saying, yeah, I went fishing with her yesterday. Now, if you were gathering evidence and trying to figure out what happened that day, who Trent went fishing with, you're gonna say, this is a contradiction. Okay, Matt said he was fishing with me, but then I said that I was fishing with Lizzie. So well, who, who was he actually fishing with? Okay? Uh, there is no contradiction there between those statements. We're just giving information that is relevant to the situation that I was in, that we each of us were in. In the same way, the gospel writers would only include people that were relevant to the story that they were telling. Often, by naming individuals present in the narrative, they're actually giving an idea of who their sources are. means, like, for example, like at the crucifixion of Jesus, all the disciples ran away. So none of them were there to see the events happen. So who did, how do they know what happened? Because they talked to people like Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, And that's where these women get named the most in the Gospels is during this time period because they're the ones who are relaying to the writers what happened. So they're just giving an indication of where the material came from. And it also might be they're writing to a community that knows this particular Mary, but they don't know the other women, so they don't mention them. It's the same thing as what my friend did in the boat. So it's not unreasonable to say that they had to name ever. they didn't have to name every single person who was there. You know, they just named the ones that they felt they needed to. <clears throat> uh, and don't feel, if someone wants to come at you with, with saying that, that there's a contradiction, don't feel like you need to give an answer of what happened with 100% certainty. You need to dig in, research, figure it out. Ah, oh, yes, this is exactly what happened. This is the exact number of women that were there at the tomb or whatever the situation is. You just need to be able to give a reasonable answer. That's all you need to do. This is, a, this is one, maybe even give two. This is a reasonable way to uh, relieve that contradiction. That's all you need to do. We don't have time today to go into a whole bunch of them, but that could be in a whole other class if we wanted to. Uh, by the way, uh, let me just say something. Other faiths cannot do this. So while the Bible has withstood centuries of attacks with supposed contradictions that are brought up all the time, none have ever stuck to it. None at all. Uh, Islam, for example, has many contradictions within the Quran and their Hadith and other writings. Uh, They are contradictions that simply cannot be resolved at all the way that the Bible can resolve them. Uh, So Muhammad himself even acknowledged this, and he set up a system called abrogation, uh, where some verses negate other verses. So this one I said at this point in time, so it supersedes that one. And if you open a copy of the Quran, most copies are going to have a chart outlining which verses are abrogated by which other verses. So we don't have anything like that in Christianity. We don't need it. Uh, there is simply no need for it at all. Our Bible is the word of God and all the other books simply are not. So we don't need to worry about it. <clears throat> all right, so uh, other liberal claims is that Christianity is feelings-based. We cannot know spiritual truth. Uh, doctr- doctrinal truth is completely unknowable in the Christian worldview. We must rely on our feelings. Uh, as Christians, however, we get our faith from the Bible, we believe that God is stable and he does not change. So Malachi 3.6 says, I the Lord and do not change. "'Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed.'" Uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. So we, we believe things that are, they're stable, we can, things that we can know. Uh, we can know spiritual truth. We can even get to know God personally. So 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There are spiritual truths that you can know, according to the Bible. This is just one example that I picked out. You can know if you are saved or not. Uh, Here's one from John 14.6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claims to be truth. Uh, and clearly you can get to know who Jesus is, that's a big claim of what we make and what the Bible makes, therefore you can know spiritual truth and you can even get to know God personally. Naturalism, which is the worldview that liberalism just automatically adopts, that that it uh, just ascends to, prevents you from learning spiritual truth right at the get-go. So they block themselves off from being able to know spiritual truth by adopting the naturalistic worldview uh, we see this here in 1 Corinthians two thirteen and 14, Paul writing, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him and is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So by adopting naturalism, you're just you're cutting yourself off. being able to know it. And also, the Bible says not to trust ourselves. Go ahead, Lisa. Can you define or explain what naturalism is? Oh, good question. Uh, Naturalism is the idea that we can only know things that are in our natural world that we can interact with. So we can know that gravity exists because we can interact with it in the natural world. We can't interact with things that are spiritual because they're in a different realm than us. So it means there might be spiritual truth out there, but it's unknowable to us because we can't interact with it. Uh, that's that's the assumption that naturalism brings, but it's it's not true, so good question. Uh, So the Bible says not to trust in ourselves. So we're not to look to ourselves and our own feelings, but we are to trust God. So this is from Proverbs 3.5. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Like our hearts are sick without Jesus, without God. Who can understand it? Uh, I left off the rest of that verse, but it says that God's the one who searches hearts. So God's the only one who really knows our hearts. Uh, and then even in Psalm 42, 5 through 6, it says, Why you cast down, O my soul, and why you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for sh- I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We have an example of somebody who's feeling distant from God, but he's saying, I'm choosing to not trust the way I feel and I'm looking to a truth that's outside of myself. I'm looking to God. And that's what we're encouraged to do in the Bible. Look to him, not to ourselves. Okay. The Bible itself says that it is the word of God. So 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, it says, And now from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's breathed out by God. It makes you wise for salvation to Jesus Christ. It equips you in righteousness to do good things. So it equips you, it it gives you spiritual truths and equips you to walk them out. We also see in 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, it says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So the Bible doesn't come from man, ultimately for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Excuse me, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God used men to write it, but it's they are his words. Uh, the Bible says that it is necessary to know spiritual truth. and If you want to know spiritual truth, you need to get it from the Bible. This is from Matthew 4.4, 4, but he answered, it, Jesus being, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Luke twenty-four, twenty-five through twenty-seven, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the in all the scriptures as the things concerning himself that there are truths about who Jesus is that are in the the Bible, starting from the books of Moses, Genesis, all the way up uh, through the New Testament. Those are the spiritual truths that you need to get from the Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 47a says, For it is no empty word for you, but it is your very life. This was said about the words of the law in the Old Testament. How much more do we say it about the words of the gospel? in the New Testament. Uh, Liberal claims about the social justice gospel. Uh, The liberal claim is that we spread the gospel not by telling people about Jesus, but by serving our fellow man and improving society and improving ourselves. Uh, The Christian response to this, uh, this, this is from Matthew 22, 34 through 40. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Liberals focus heavily on the second commandment. But they completely disregard the first commandments, which is which Jesus called great, which was to love God only and to serve him with everything you have. They don't. They think that God is unknowable. And so they just completely neglect him altogether. Uh, And as far as only having to work by or show our our faith by our deeds. This is what it says, or only have to spread the gospel by our deeds, not by our words. This is what Paul writes in uh, Romans chapter 10. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel has to be preached with words. Actions are not good enough. The only way that anybody's ever going to get saved is having the word, having the gospel shared with them with words. It's very clear. So whatever you've heard from that that famous quote from uh, St. Francis uh, from Assisi, that wherever you go, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Well, words are necessary. So everywhere you go, preach the gospel with your words. I mean, do it with your actions too. So there is the second commandment. So we don't want to neglect that because he said the, the second one is like it. But you need to use, you need to obey the first one as well. Uh, The Bible also says that we are incapable of saving ourselves. So we are incapable of improving our own selves spiritually. So they want to say that basically the Bible is a self-help book, uh, but that's not what the Bible says about itself. Uh, And it's not what it says about us. So what it says about us is that all have sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. It says in 1 John 4.19 that we love because he first loved us. We were never going to love God on our own initiative. He had to do it first. Uh, This is another quote here from Ephesians four twenty through 24. It says, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Your old self is corrupt, it's rotten, it's bad, put it off. Okay, that's what the Bible has to say about you pre-Christ. It never says anything good about you until you become righteous, until you accept Jesus' righteousness. Uh, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's Psalm 14, two through three. Jesus himself quotes that verse uh, in the New Testament. Now, uh, we are saved apart from our works, not because of what we do. So they want to say that we work through self-improvement. The Bible is a tool for that, and the church is the vehicle. Uh, but the Bible says that it is for grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. I think I have a meme that I skipped at the beginning. <clears throat> right? So there's Aaron and Adam all die. Yes, but what about the second Adam? So we all are dead in our sins because of, we all inherit that nature from Adam. But unfortunately, or fortunately for us, we have a second Adam. And we can get his righteousness from him if we put our faith in him. All right. And this is probably the most hated doctrine. Right, The idea that uh, that people are sinful and that they're evil. If you really want to get somebody angry, you tell them that they're a sinner. OK. At least pre-Christ. Uh, the, Jesus said that the world cannot hate you. He's talking to some people who asked him if he's going. So there, he's talking to some unregenerate people. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. All right, so it gets people angry. <clears throat> uh, liberal claims about Jesus. They said that Jesus is not necessary, but he was only a good moral teacher who is one of many ways that we can worship God. Uh, You've probably heard a phrase like this before, Christ isn't mentioned on every page of the Bible. Like, come on, Trent, he's not everywhere. At least that's that's how they said it to me anyways, back when I was in college. Uh, Well, what's the response to this? Jesus is necessary, and he's the only means by which we can approach God. To say that Jesus is not on every page is not true, actually, as that misses the point of John 5.39 and Luke 24.27. We're going to look at that uh, a little more in a second. Uh, But first, what does the Bible say about salvation through Jesus? Jesus is clearly the only way. It says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Acts chapter 4, 11 through 12. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Buddha, Muhammad, etc. none of them are gonna mediate for you on Judgment Day. Only Jesus Christ can do that for you, and he'll only do it if you put your faith in him before you get there. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John three thirty six, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we of all people most are to be pitied. Uh, Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 19. Uh, a couple of weeks ago I said that uh, the authority of the church is the one pillar that Catholicism is built on and that's the one thing you need to remove the resurrection of Jesus is the one pillar that really really rests everything on in Christianity in biblical Christianity if you remove the resurrection of Christ if that didn't happen then we're still in our sins and if we only have hope on this side of eternity and we're expecting salvation uh, because of our faith in Christ but he didn't actually rise from the dead uh, then we're to be pitied above all other men We're looking forward to something that we can't achieve because we're all sinners and we're all going to hell without Christ. And then just in conclusion, the last thing I want to say is that Jesus is indeed everywhere in the Bible. For example, uh, well, here's this is from John 539. It says you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is saying the Bible, the purpose of the Bible is to tell you about who Jesus is, straight up. Uh, Luke 24, 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he being Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, etc., Leviticus, all of that up through the prophets, they all testify about Jesus and who he is. And let's look at it, one example of that. Uh, have any of you ever picked up on the fact that there was a rock that apparently followed the Israelites around in the desert? If you go back and read, the, read that story uh, in Exodus and Numbers, that there's, yeah, this is this rock that's always present. And it's always like around Moses. Like, I don't know if it was like rolling around, or if it was sliding, appearing around, I don't know. Uh, but Paul says that was a, it, it was a spiritual rock. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 he says for they the Israelites drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. And if you look at what happened in that story Moses struck the rock he was told to strike the rock and then it brought forth water. Okay so Jesus is the one who gives you water that you'll never thirst again. So like Jesus was being crucified. The rock was struck. But then the second time it brings forth water, he was told to speak to the rock. He didn't need to strike it again because Jesus was already crucified. But what Moses did in his anger is he struck the rock a second time, and he broke the picture of what was supposed to be happening there. It was supposed to be, you can approach now that Christ has been struck with a rock, now, I mean, he's giving you what you need. Now you just need to go to him and ask in confidence, and he'll give it to you. That's supposed to be the picture that's represented there with that rock. Uh, But Moses broke it. He broke the picture and he crucified Jesus again, effectively. And that made God really angry. And uh, Moses was punished for it. So that that rock was meant to be the picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. I think that's pretty neat. Um, I think that's something that Jesus went over on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. It was things like that. Uh, there are a bunch of other pictures that are in the Old Testament. Obviously, some, some obvious ones are the lamb that was sacrificed on the Day of Atonement. That's clearly meant to be Jesus. But there are all kinds of pictures scattered all throughout uh, all the Old Testament that all testify who Jesus is. It's a really cool study uh, to do. Uh, so just my last comments. So it is our task to defend the faith not because it needs defending in and of itself, because God will see that his church continues, but because there are believers out there with weak faith that can be swayed by these ideas, and their ministry and their lives are going to be diminished because of it. And it is our job to remain faithful to the task of helping them stay firm in their faith and to bring glory to God by doing so. We'll have nobody to blame but ourselves if we allow the church to evacuate God's truth and replace it with empty thoughts and vain concerns. It will be our children and their children who suffer if we fail in this task. Let us not be the ones who fail to pass the faith on to the next generation. And that's why I oppose progressive Christianity so strongly. Any final questions before we finish out? Okay. Alright, let's close the prayer. So <clears throat> Yeah, God, we. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that your word is truth, that it nourishes us, that it, uh, it keeps us strong in our faith, that it teaches us truths about who you are, and that it is the means that you have decided to convey yourself to us. We're grateful for that because we know that we don't deserve it, uh, and we just pray for those around us who don't know you yet that they would come to know you. We pray for the salvation, that they would see the truth of your word and that we and others around them would preach the gospel of Christ to them using words. Uh, We love you and we thank you that you are the one who loved us first. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. Putting up with my my half PowerPoint. Oh, there's only one more uh, lesson after this. So next week is the last one. Uh, it's going to be on Bethel Church out in Reading. All right? Uh, and uh, uh, Bill Johnson. So You're welcome.